So a family was vacationing on a lake one summer, and the dad was putting around the boathouse. He had two sons, a 12-year-old and then a three-year-old named Billy playing near the dock. Now the 12-year-old was supposed to be watching his little brother, but he got distracted. So three-year-old little Billy thought this would be a good time to go and explore the shiny aluminum fishing boat tied to the end of the dock. And so when he went to the end of the dock, he put one foot on the boat, and about that time, he lost his footing, and he fell into the murky, muddy water that was about five or six feet deep. The splash alerted his 12-year-old brother, who screamed, and the dad heard that and came running from the boathouse jumped into the water and down into the muddy, dirty water and um, looking for his son. But he was unable to find him. He came up for air, but immediately he went back down again to the very bottom of the lake and, and, and he's, he's looking around and nowhere could he find his son and he's sick with panic. And then all of a sudden, he feels as he feels one of the posts of the dock, the clenched fingers of this tiny little three-year-old boy holding on for dear life to the, the, the dock post, and he pries this little boy's fingers off, grabs him, and swims up to the top, and they both got a precious gasp of air. Now, if you're a parent, that, that's, I have nightmares all the time that, you know, I have my, my son fell into the, to the lake or I'm rescuing him from this or that. I, I guess it just goes with being a dad. Amazingly, a father doesn't mind jumping into a muddy lake. He doesn't mind getting wet, getting dirty. Why? Because he loves his son. He'll do whatever it takes to rescue his son. You know, um, in, the, in this particular story, the father, after the adrenaline ru what rush wore off, he asked his three-year-old, what on earth were you doing down there hanging on to the post so far underwater? And little Billy's answer was a classic wisdom-laced toddler response. He said, I was just waiting for you, Dad, just waiting for you to come get me. In Mark chapter nine, we see a story where Jesus, it, it, is, it is probably one of the greatest miraculous moments in the life of Jesus in, in that Jesus is transfigured and the light of the glory of God shines through him and his clothes are shining white. I mean, the, the writer struggles to find the words but he says, you know, his, his clothes were so white, like nobody could bleach clothes as white as the clothes that the shining Jesus was wearing. Now, why, why is that important? It's because the disciples had just had an exchange with Jesus in Mark chapter eight, where the crowds are growing and people are responding to the ministry of Jesus. And... Jesus asks his disciples, well, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say that you are John the Baptist, come back from the dead, or one of the, 
one of the prophets, and then Jesus turns it on Peter and says, on, on all of them, and says, but who do you say that I am? And, and his response is the great statement. Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. You're the Christ, the promised Messiah, God, who come to us. Yet he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And Jesus says, well, I don't want you to go telling people this yet. And he began to teach them. And so the, the, the topic of his discussion immediately changes. And Jesus says, he began to teach them. This is, so listen, guys, this is what's got to happen, okay? The Son of Man, I'm paraphrasing. That's Eddie Lyons' little, you know. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now just imagine how audacious and bold is Peter to take Jesus. And, uh, Jesus, come over here. I, got, I need to tell you something. Jesus, you don't need to be talking like that. Can you imagine? Jesus then returns the favor and rebukes Peter in front of the disciples with these very strong words, and he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. You know, um, one of the most amazing and difficult things to wrap your mind around is this idea that God became a man in the person of the son of Jesus. The Jesus standing there in front of the disciples was actually God in the flesh. And the disciples were good with, with that, the, the idea that Jesus was a great miracle worker who demonstrated compassion, who preached like crazy, who spoke truth to power, who fed the hungry and, and healed the lame and the sick, and they were all good with that. I mean, for them, they were on an upward trajectory to the right. I mean, hey, it's getting better and better and better. We know where this is headed. If this keeps going on, I mean, Jesus is gonna be the most powerful man in all of Israel, and we are the 12 disciples, and they're loving this, and then Jesus, says to them, hey, guys, let me tell you what's gonna happen. Here's what's gonna happen. Uh, I'm going to be taken by the elders. I am going to be, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die, and then I'm gonna rise again. And they did not like that message. Peter didn't for sure. But Jesus basically was saying, no, Peter, don't you know that the story is that the Son of Man is the Father on the, on the, on the, on the shore who has to dive into the dirty, murky water and grab his son, risk his life. And Jesus said, I'm even gonna have to die to rescue you, and I'm here to do that. You know, I have a friend who, um, from, from school, like we started in first grade together at the same school. We were classmates on and off throughout all of elementary and all the way through high school, we graduated the same year. So, like, I've known this guy and his family for a long time. Now, we lost touch. He became an attorney, a successful guy. Um, and I remember that uh, we reconnected on Facebook, and he, he actually loved my son James. 
He never met James, but he loved any post that I made about James. So much so that this guy sent James souvenirs from where he lived. And so, like, like this is really great. I'm like, I, I never saw him as being so tender. I mean, you know, of course, we, did, we were just high school students together. But he, his, his concern and his, his love for James was just amazing. And so uh, we began to correspond by uh, Facebook, and he was sending James, he sent him a T-shirt, he sent him some souvenirs from where he lived. And so um, I decided one time I was going to send him a book. And it was a book about the grace of God, because so many people struggle to figure out how do I, what do I have to do to be saved, and this book is, you know, how good is good enough, and the answer to that question is, nobody is good enough. If anybody ever gets saved, it's the grace of God, it is the gift of God, it is the mercy of God, you just have to ask, and, 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 and you, you get it. And so I, I sent the book to him, and he actually returned um, with a, a, a two-page typed letter, and he described his spiritual journey, and, and I wanna just read you an excerpt, because here's the truth. Figuring out that Jesus is the Son of God and what that means, figuring out what it means that Jesus had to go to a cross and die, and then raise it, rose again the third day, I mean, all of that's not easy stuff. Are you having a hard time figuring that out? Welcome to the club. But this is what my friend said in his letter. I love that other people believe firmly in Christian religion. I never put it down and take issue with anyone who does. It'd be a better country and world if more folks were, much better. I respect the work that you do and the joy and the good you give and receiving, uh, you give and receive going, doing it. I also wish I could believe in Christianity or actually in any other religion, but I can't. And sometimes the comfort it can bring to those who do. It is not as if I haven't read a lot and thought deeply about it for a long time. I understand many, if not all the arguments, but I just don't believe. Like I said, sometimes I really wish I could, but I can't. And I, I so appreciate my friend's authentic response. He was candid and authentic and He's just one of many people who have struggled throughout history trying to figure out who Jesus was. Jesus was God, the creator, giver of life, and then he died. How does that happen? And, and like, like, like he died dead. You get what I'm trying to say? It wasn't a joke. It wasn't a trick. He was dead. And then he rose from the grave. Rising from the grave after dying is, is what we really can't understand all my loved ones and friends who have died, they're still dead. And Jesus dies, and three days later, he rises again, and he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I get it, it's hard to figure that out. You know, as I wrote this, I was praying again for my friend, because, man, I just beg God to please help him. Um. There's no doubt when Jesus rebukes Peter and he says, get thee behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God but of the things of men, that Jesus says there's a, a spiritual battle that goes on in the hearts and lives of people. No one can really understand this truth unless God would reveal it to him. And you better believe that Satan and all of the forces that he musters 
are working to confuse and blind and deceive. It's a battle. I get it. It's a battle. If you're here today and you're listening to this and you think, well, I'm not sure if I can believe in Jesus. And I mean, you can't do what you can't do, right? But I want you to be aware that there is testimony that Jesus is God, that he rose from the grave. And if you're struggling, my suggestion would be that you pray a prayer, something like this. Jesus, I want to know you, and I want to believe in you if you'll help me understand and show me how to believe. You've got nothing to lose. Just a, just a little, open the door, let him speak. Because the truth is, he has come to help. So the first thing is that it's all really confusing. I get it. Secondly, um, there is this unexpected glimpse of glory that takes place in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 10. And I just want to read it. It's, it's the transfiguration of Jesus. So Jesus, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. Okay, now, it wasn't unusual for Jesus to take these three guys with him. Jesus very characteristically would go up on mountains to pray. So they were coming. They probably were thinking we're going to do one of these prayer meetings again. So he takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain uh, apart by themselves And then it it goes into this amazing statement. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared with them, with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he didn't know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. So here's the deal. Peter, when he's stressed, when he is afraid, he talks. And he's making a suggestion to Jesus. Let's build three tabernacles. I mean, are are you kidding me? This is the who's who of the Bible. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. I'm, I'm sure Peter's thinking, let's skip this going and suffering and dying. Let's just build our camp right here and celebrate these guys and you, Jesus. Oh. We can skip the cross, skip the dying. Let's not do that. I mean, anything but that, really. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no no one anymore, but only Jesus with them. With, with themselves. Now as they came down from the mountain, he, speaking of Jesus, commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. I can't explain everything about this. 
I mean, there's very little detail for this incredible moment. But we do learn that Jesus is not bound by time and space, but he is eternal. And in this meeting, he calls a meeting with two men that are gone. Moses has been buried for 1,400 years at this point. Elijah was the great uh, um, prophet who didn't die, but he was carried up into heaven in a chariot of fire. I mean, so Jesus doesn't work with the, you're dead, you're not. I mean, Jesus is eternal. Moses is this great prophet of the Old Testament. There's probably not any other person who spent more personal time in the presence of God than Moses. He received the Ten Commandments. He received the law. I mean, he, he was such a great man. He spent so much time in the presence of God that when Moses came down from the mountain one time, the Shekinah glory of God that he was in, he was in proximity to um, had rubbed off on him and his face glowed. And they said, Moses, you're, you're freaking us out. Can you please put a veil over your face? It's hard to look at you and talk to you because like, I'm like, that's the, the glory of God, and it scares us. Interestingly enough, the longer Moses stayed in the presence of God, he never got his fill. He always wanted to be with God even more. He always wanted to see more of God. He wanted to somehow enter into a greater level of glory with God, even to the point that in Exodus 33, we have this interesting exchange between God and Moses. Exodus 33, 18 to 20. And, and he said, please show me your glory. And then he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face <clears throat> you shall, shall not be seen. So what we learn here is, Human beings are not built with the capacity to stand and fully absorb the glory of God. It is just too much for us. It kind of reminds me of when I was in elementary school and we were studying about eclipses and then we were going to have an eclipse. Do you all know what an eclipse is? And you all are educated? Yeah, okay. So, um, so it's like, okay, watch the sun. And, you know, the, the, there's going to be, the moon's going to get in the way and then it's going to turn dark. And, and then we were warned by our teachers and our, my mother you are not allowed to stare straight into the sun because your eyes will get burnt by the sun just by staring straight at it. Who knew? So here, wear these glasses. And then we made like special paper glasses with little tiny holes in it. And I don't even know, remember how we designed them, but I remember that we were, we were like looking but being very careful because you can't stare at the sun. You also can't enter into the presence of an almighty, eternal, glorious God and survive. And so these guys knew that when they saw Jesus' glory and his clothes shining, 
that they were probably going to die. But then something happened that was different. Somehow the glory of God through Jesus was a level of being in the presence of the glory of God where they could survive. I don't fully understand it all, but that's what happened. And it marked Peter, James, and John, and they never forgot about it. You see, if, if it was so hard for them to hear that Jesus was going to suffer and die, it was going to be even more difficult for them to actually watch him suffer and die. And I think Jesus, in his kindness, reveals that he is an eternal God so that when they go through those hard times, they would have a truth to hold on to. There he is on the cross. I can't believe he's on the cross, but wait a second. Peter, James, John, remember we were up on the mountain and, and Jesus, his glory shone. He spoke with Elijah and Moses. He's dying, but this is not the end of the story. We just know it. He spoke of rising again from the grave. Remember, we've never understood that. Maybe we're going to figure it out. Peter writes this in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21. Peter's already an old man, but this is what he says. For we did not follow cunning devised fables will be made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses to his majesty. That's what he's talking about. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That was at the baptism of Jesus. In verse 18, and we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we gotta tell you, as hard as it is for you to understand, Jesus was God. John writes this in 1 John 1, 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. And so they, they, they continue as eyewitnesses to the deity of Christ. It, it changed them forever. You know, I, I believe when, with, that God, very characteristically because of his compassion and his mercy, can sometimes come and strengthen us in a moment of difficulty. I think we should be aware and look for it. I'm going through a hard time. I don't know what to do, but God, would you please, would you please strengthen me? I think that's a prayer God would answer. Third, they went down from the mountain and they were talking among themselves, questioning 
what the rising from the dead meant. They began talking about the resurrection here, and they never stopped talking about it. And in fact, today, thousands of years later, you and I are here because we continue to talk about a dead man whose name was Jesus, who died on a cross, who was buried, and on the third day he rose again. And he was seen by his disciples. Uh, it, it, it is the most amazing story. There's no question that Jesus was powerful in teaching. There was no question that Jesus changed the world by teaching us to care about the least of these, um, to be a, a agents of justice and mercy and goodness. And, but the greatest thing Jesus ever did was die and then rise again from the grave. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul now writes about the resurrection. 15, 3 to 8, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. I mean, this, this is a body of witnesses that is hard to dismiss of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So this is, this is Paul saying, there, there are eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ that are still among you. Some of them have passed away, but there were 500 of them. If you really want to figure this out, go and talk to those witnesses because they are there. And after that, he was seen by James and then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen all, by me also as by one born out of due time. So Paul says, and I saw him. Paul writes, you know, Jesus did die, but he rose again. And all four Gospels were written between 30 and 60 years right after the death of Jesus. I mean, what we're not talking here, we're not talking about fairy tales or cunning tales. We're talking about facts of history that are corroborated by hundreds of witnesses. One of my favorite writers on the topic of whether or not Jesus was the Son of God, died and rose again, is Lee Strobel. If you've never read his book, you should get his book. He's got a couple of case for faith, a case for Christ. Um, here's the story of Lee Strobel. He, he was married, he was an atheist. He was married to his atheist wife and they, ha they lived happily ever after, or at least until his wife went to a Bible study like, what is an educated woman doing going to a Bible study? But she went to this Bible study, and she became a Christian. And then she came home, and she told Lee Strobel, well, I need to tell you something. I have, I have heard the story of Jesus, and I need to let you know that I have become a Christian. And he was angry because he didn't want a Christian wife. He married an atheist wife, and she changed. And, and now he's married to a Christian, and this is not his plan. And he was so mad, he decided to use his talent and trade as an investigative reporter to investigate the claims of Jesus and prove to his wife how ridiculous her conclusion was that Jesus could have been the Son of God who died and rose again. And as he collected all the information and began to write about this, Lee Strobel himself became a Christian. Four things he points out in his book. Number one, Jesus was dead after the crucifixion. I mean, that seems pretty obvious, but some have questioned whether or not he actually died. 
He was dead. And he says the, even the American uh, Journal, the Journal of American Medical Association would examine the evidence and found that Jesus was dead even before being stabbed while he was still hanging on the cross. I mean, these guys were expert executioners. They knew how to kill. Secondly, early reports of the resurrection came so closely after his death that they have to be at least taken seriously. Third, the empty tomb. Even the opponents of Jesus admit that the tomb where his body was placed after the crucifixion, it was sealed by the, Ro by the Romans and guarded by the Romans. So here, here is the tomb, and after the resurrection, it was empty, and they inspected it, and his, his enemies would have loved to have presented a body, but they couldn't because there was no body there because he rose again. Fourth, nine ancient sources inside and outside of the New Testament confirm and corroborate that the disciples encountered the risen Jesus. You know, Lee Strobel says his two-year investigation led him to the conclusion that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, and he backed up that outrageous claim by raising from the dead. Instead of a crush, a rush of emotion at such discovery, Strobel said he experienced a rush of reason and he became a child of God. We've been discussing the, the resurrection of Jesus from the time of the Mount of Transfiguration. Paul continues, 1 Corinthians 15, 14 to 19. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. I mean, th this is the linchpin of the whole story. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Now some people would say, you know, you know if it works for you, that's fine. That's good. Paul says, nope, uh-uh. If you and I are believing a lie, we are to be pitied. The resurrection of Jesus is the central truth of Christianity and the proof that Jesus, in fact, was the Son of God. The last thing I want to leave with you is this, and that is that we have to learn to trust in our confusion. You know, one of the things I've observed is that when life goes um, well, people are happy and full of faith. But when life gets difficult, like for instance, if there's a death of a loved one, an unexpected loss, a marriage falls apart, children turn away, financial crisis strikes, and the why questions come out, God, why, why, why? We're as confused as Peter and the disciples, why? Why are you doing this, God? True trust, trust is determined when we are in a time of confusion, when we're enduring difficulty and pain. That's when we've got to hold on 
Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Anybody here ever had your own understanding get in the way of trusting God? Like, God, I'm not getting you. You don't make any sense. I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to stay. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. You know, the greatest testimonies are from people that are in the middle of great pain, suffering, confusion, difficulty, and they still choose to trust. Psalm 42, 11, why are you downcast, O my soul? I mean, obviously there was a reason why the soul was downcast, right? But this is speaking to yourself. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. The book of Job is a study in trusting God in confusion and pain. Job, he lost all of his children. He lost his wealth, his business. He was in agony because of the sickness that he was enduring. And in the middle of all of this, Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job amazingly writes in anticipation of a resurrection from the dead. Job 19, 25 to 27, for I know my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, not another, how my heart yearns within me. True trust is determined when it's hard to trust, when we choose to trust in the middle of our hurt and our confusion and our pain. Because here's the story. We were like that three-year-old little boy that fell into the muddy, dark waters of the lake and we're holding on to the pole because we don't know what else to do, waiting for our dad to come and get us. And Jesus did. And to get us, he had to swim in the dirty, muddy, lake and risk his life. Jesus gave his life in order to save us. He's the only one who can save. If you don't know him and you're confused by him, why don't you just at least say to him, I would sure love to have a savior. Would you show yourself to me? Maybe you're in the middle of pain and confusion and difficulty and your faith is growing weak. Now trust in the Lord with all your heart. Choose to do that. He'll show up. He will help. Would you stand?